Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason, where we get together every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, farming, the industry we know and love. I try to always bring you something new and different, and I've got a great one for you today. I've got Darren Paget. He's a friend, a, a farmer, and a wheat ambassador, if you will. I met Darren 13 years ago when I did a political comedy show in Sherman County, Oregon. It's Morrow, a little town. Uh, I mean, it's the size of two phone booths, I swear to you. Uh, it's a neat part of the world because you're thinking, oh, Oregon, if you're not from here, that's like where they have pine trees and forests and liberals who drink coffee all the time. Well, that's true for the western part of the state, the western one-third, but there's a whole bunch of this state that's high and dry. In fact, it's very high and then also very slopey. So I came here 13 years ago. I did a political comedy show. I came back the next year and did a presentation for them. And as it turns out, this evening, right now, as we're recording, I'm about an hour and a half away from going on stage and doing my third program for them. So I decided, why not get my old buddy Darren to join me here and talk to you folks about the business of wheat, about wheat exports, about global wheat consumption, about the different types of wheats, wheat marketing, and also what's it like farming in a part of the world where the hills are so slopey, the combines almost roll down the hill, and also where there's no rain. Darren Padgett, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Thanks for having me, Damien. It's good to see you again. It's been a while. It's been a while, but you know what? We see each other quite a bit. We see each other not only when I come to Sherman County, Oregon, but you and I have seen each other at the Tri-States Wheat Conference, which is, uh, I've done three different times for them. That's always held in Spokane, and the Tri-States being Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. You and I also saw each other for a wheat event in Portland, Oregon several years ago. So we, we kind of cross paths, you and I. Yep, and it's always a pleasure most of the time. We'll see how today goes. I should tell our listeners what's neat is I roped you into doing this because I thought this is something we haven't done. I've never had a wheat person on the Business of Agriculture podcast, and also I've been to your farm. I've been out in Grass Valley, Oregon, where you farm. So I'm going to let you give a little biographicals from Grass Valley, Oregon, a wheat producer, also a secretary treasurer for the U.S. Wheat Associates, and he is a commissioner on the Oregon Wheat Commission. What else am I missing? Uh, that pretty well covers it. I'm fourth generation and the fifth generation's home to farm now. Now I know the part of the world you're from, that's not that big a deal. But when you're on the West Coast, we're a little slow, but we finally got here. Yeah, well, in my part of the world, there's lots of folks that have that pedigree. I'm not one of them. As I point out, we're as poor and uninherited as any people that you'll ever meet from our part of the world <laughs> because my dad was a my dad was a glorified sharecropper. He was a herdsman, milked cows for other people. Uh, so uh, we, we didn't come from any kind of generational uh, land-held gentry. So... Here's the thing. I've been to your place, and a lot of folks listen to this. I've got folks that, you know, they sell seed in Ohio, and they, you know, broker machinery in Oklahoma, and they are in the livestock business in Florida. So you're in a part of the world that gets like, what, 10 inches of rain per year? 10 to 12, and it happens between September and March. And if we get a May rain, that's like winning the lottery. Okay, so a lot of folks, like where I'm from, we get about 40 inches of annual precipitation, and, and so they're saying, okay, what's that like? So a lot of folks, I, I tell them, well, you know, they, they farm... Darren farms this many acres, but not every year. Talk about that. Well, in the eastern side of the good side, by the way, of the state of Oregon and Washington, uh, you're in a summer fallow rotation, which I believe they're doing a little of that in Kansas still and maybe that part of the world, eastern Colorado. But uh, if you try to grow a crop annually here, it's only going to work about maybe one or two years in 10. We haven't... Uh, there are people have tried it, and about every generation has to try to annual crop, and 
there are financial issues that follow, and then everybody falls back into line. Okay, so you don't have any of your acres that you do consecutive year after year? No. If you say you farm 3,000 acres a year, that means you got 3,000 acres of crop and 3,000 acres of fallow. One piece of ground will go a crop in even years, and one goes a crop in odd years. What is your number of acres, by the way? Well, that's pretty personal. Okay, we don't need to get into that. That's good. Some people don't need to hear that. All right, so half of your farm, half of your half of your land gets farmed uh, every year, uh, and and obviously half of it does not because it lays there and gathers moisture. Another mm-hmm. interesting thing that folks wouldn't realize the amount of slope. I, I came up uh, the canyon and I saw fields that were forty percent slope. Am I accurate? Yeah, down in the closer to the Columbia River, you're going to find the steeper stuff, and then the further go you go south, you're more on the plateaus. So most of my stuff is either flat or eight to ten percent rolling hills, but the ground's also shallower too. I'm kind of a forty bushel guy. Down where you're talking about, it'd be more like seventy or eighty. Yeah, so it, the slopier stuff. Uh, meaning, and for you dear listeners, uh, the Columbia River divides Oregon and Washington. So basically to get here, you land in Portland, you drive east mostly for about a hundred and some miles, then you turn south, and then you start going up this big gorge. And it is steep, and I'm telling you, there's 40 and 50% slopes that have agriculture on them. And and you're saying, Darren, that that ground is a deeper soil through whatever the glaciation or the way the wind blew it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a deeper, better soil, and it'll produce more. It's just that it's harder to do because you you might you walk out you step off your combine you're going to tumble down the hill like the runaway pancake yeah you want to be careful where you park and uh you know if you got to when nature calls you better be uh, paying attention to how you position everything there are accidents there was one last year where uh, an elderly gentleman went off a hill and he lived through it, but it wasn't very it wasn't very good. You and, talked uh, about when nature calls because I'm a lowlander, and I think I think we've got uh, slopes to manage on my property because we've got some eight percent slope a couple of places, maybe some six mm-hmm. to, six to eight percent slope on a couple of my places. Uh, I think if I was operating a combine on some of these hills that these guys farm, nature would call it on an accidental basis for me because <laughs> I would look down the hill and realize I might just be dying. Well, the the other problem is uh, when you have to buy one of those hillside kits. And there's a few in the Midwest, I guess, Indiana and some places like that. There are some steep hills, but you just add a hundred grand to the price of a combine, and it's a very specialized uh, segment. So yeah, your part of the county doesn't have the forty percent slopes. You've got more like ten and twelve percent slopes. It's still curvy, completely yeah. compared to you know where we're, sure. maybe a lot of folks are used to. But you don't require the hillside machinery on the side of your combine. No, I do have a few steep places, but they're just a few acres. So basically, you pucker up and hang on. Okay. So you are uh, you're a wheat producer, and I remember when I came out to your ranch, I looked and I saw a fence, and I saw a couple of you know, old barns, and you said you used to keep some cows down in the in the hollows and the, mm-hmm. the ridges, the stuff that is you know where the water flows when you do get rain, and where there's uh, you know sagebush and whatnot. You don't fool with that anymore. No, I uh, buy four steers from the neighbor in March, run them till December, butcher them out for the friends and ourselves. And then I'm a bovine free zone when it's really cold and nasty, and I just pour another cup of coffee when a blizzard's going, and go back in and see, you see and, how the rest of them are. You and I have that in common. Uh, we we were May until Thanksgiving, and then Arizona. The cow, the steers come in in May. They're done by Thanksgiving, and they get butchered and sold. I don't like the idea of going out and having to handle frozen waters. So uh, instead of livestock, you've got quite an interesting sideline. We're going to get to that in a little bit. You mm-hmm. are on the Oregon Wheat Commission, mm-hmm. and then you are with the U.S. Wheat Associates, and you're the Secretary of Treasury, so that takes some time. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've uh, already spent close to three weeks overseas this year, and I'm about to head over 
on the what they call the Asian Crop Quality Tour here, uh, first part of November. All right, before we get to that, Mister Paget, because mm-hmm. uh, I want to, I think our listeners want to hear all about the memberships <laughs> because they want to know what are you doing for us? Because you know we're all in this together. We're all trying to grow sales, grow market share, get more, get more products sold, and that's what you're doing those things for. But before we get into that, let's talk about what happens right here. Okay, you grow wheat. I don't know a lot about wheat because Indiana is fairly inconsequential to wheat. We grew it always growing up because we needed wheat straw for our dairy operation. There was wheat on my property this year because I rent my farmland to a dairyman. He wanted the straw, needed the straw, needed a place to go with manure in July. That's another issue you have in our part of the world. Here you would just take it out to your fallow ground. We have none. So if you need a place to get rid of manure starting in July, you plant wheat, and that way you can pump out all your lagoons and use your, the, the ground in July. So you get the straw, get the place to go with manure, and the other thing is, then in late August, early September, he came in and worked the ground and worked the ground and worked the ground, and then put in alfalfa. If you're going to work the ground to where you can paddle a, pet, uh, dribble a basketball off of it like you want for alfalfa, you don't want to do that in May in Indiana, otherwise you'll get three inches of rain and your farm will be down the Wabash River. So that's what I know about wheat. We, do, we don't, uh, we grow it, it's hard, it's, it's red winter wheat, and that's what I know. There's five other kinds, you tell me. Well, that's the dominant class, and of the wheat crop, Nationwide, 50% is exported. The PNW, soft white, is the big one. There is some hard red. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There's somebody listening to this in Iowa that says, what the hell is he talking about? PNW. Pacific Northwest. And you also sometimes call it the Inland Northwest. Sometimes. Okay. So here in the Pacific Northwest, the dominant wheat species is? Soft white wheat. Soft white. And then what we grow in places like Indiana would be hard red. Mm -hmm. And ours is winter. Yes, and it's soft white is winter here as well. Okay. There, is there spring wheat that happens here? Yes, but in this dry area, if you plant spring wheat, you're going to take a 30 to 40% yield hit typically. Because you don't get any moisture to get you know, it going. The only reason we plant spring wheat typically, and there are exceptions to the rule, as there are always, uh, it's to clean something up. A disease issue, a cheatgrass issue, some kind of a weed issue, breaking a cycle, you know, stuff scientists know that get paid a whole lot more than sure. I do to so know what's at, wrong. At that point, yield is not as important as taking care of a problem that the field presents and, and the way to do it was to put in the spring wheat. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we can grow one of three things in this dry area. We can grow wheat, we can grow wheat, or we can grow wheat. <laughs> Actually, barley used to be a little bit here, but that market kind of died in the 90s. And you will see some spring barley, but the winter barleys are gone, and it was feed barley, not malt barley, because we don't have enough elevation typically. You need to get into southeast Idaho and, to get that. And and from an economic standpoint, feed barley versus wheat, it just doesn't pencil out for you to try and grow feed barley? Uh, it used to on the rockier ground, and it matured a week to 10 days sooner than the wheat did. So it kind of worked, but as uh, the economics have evolved, the breeders looked more towards the malt crops. Uh, we all of a sudden didn't have the uh, quantity we needed to be consistently exporting. So we just kind of taken over. CRP came in, took a lot of those thinner acres out. And so we've been 100% wheat for a number of years. I mean, I've raised a little barley, but it's pretty sparse. When you uh, you started describing the wheats, okay, there's soft white mm-hmm. and there's hard red. So you said hard red is the dominant. Uh, you know, if I'm talking Kansas, which I think is still in the, the nation. Is Kansas still the number one uh, wheat producing state? Uh, Kansas and North Dakota. Okay, Kansas, North Dakota, and then Oregon and Washington play. 
Oregon's number 12. Poor number 12. <laughs> Washington is in the higher end of that. They Oregon grows about 50 million bushels annually. Idaho, you know, it's more like 90. And Washington's up in the mid-100 range, depending on the year. Okay. So, so the white wheat crop is probably... 250 million bushels out of uh, 2.2 to 2.3 billion bushel nationwide wheat crop. Okay, so soft white, your product goes for what product? So your soft white okay. goes to what stuff that I eat or I feed? Well, uh, Ritz crackers. Okay. Triscuits, okay. Oreos, pita bread. It's very low gluten. So crackers and, and baked goods is where soft white goes. Confectionery flour, uh -huh. yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, it. Your hard red is your bread flour, which obviously you know, and you got to have 13, 14% protein to make a good loaf of bread. Well, soft white, not always, but typically what they're after is 8 to 9% protein. Uh -huh. So you've got a whole different deal. And 85% of the crop grown in the Pacific Northwest is exported. 85% of the Pacific Northwest wheat goes to export. I knew that you're going to get into that and we're going Okay, to, we'll do that the next segment. We're going to do that. No, we're going to do that in a second. After we take a brief commercial break. And by the way, my listeners are saying, "Commercial break? What's he talking about? Did you pick up a sponsor? Of course I did." The sponsor for this program is Damian Mason, reminding you that if you need a speaker at your agricultural business meeting in 2019, please check out my stuff at damianmason.com. I'd love to work with you just like I'm working with Darren and the Mid-Columbia producers here in Morrow, Oregon this evening. Okay, back to your thing. The soft white being lower gluten and lower protein, mm -hmm. uh, so it's baked goods or, or particularly, you know, crackers, those kinds of things, but has the gluten nonsense, the, the gluten-free, gluten intolerance uh, trend, has it helped consumption of soft white? I really doubt that. I think gluten is gluten, and people have their impressions, and that's one of the things that your grower groups continually battle in through the education and stuff. But so what? So really, it doesn't matter. Uh, you grow what you grow because it's what you can grow most efficiently, and then it's a matter of finding the product's um, uh, usage. Is that the way it works? Yeah, and every class has its challenges. You've got uh, the soft red community in the middle of the country that uh, competes with soft white out of the Gulf. Uh, you've also got, as your hard red winners, you said, you've got your hard red spring, which is really uh, kind of considered the, cre the cream of the crop of the major varieties. And then you got your Durham, which is very much in the northern tier of the country, which is more your pastas and things like that. All right. So 85% of your stuff goes to export. We're going to get to exports in a minute. But before I do that, since I am, I've, I've, I tell folks, I willingly admit my strengths and my weaknesses. I really do a good job of keeping up with what happens on the consumer end. Uh, production stuff, I understand pretty well. But as far as grain marketing, man, I hated that class. I don't want to do it. I don't do it. I cash rent my farmland out. When I look at wheat prices, I see a Kansas City price. I see a Minneapolis price. And I see a Chicago Chicago Board of Trade price. Tell me the difference. And they're all different. Well, they're all for a different class of wheat. Minneapolis there we is go. Spring wheat. Yeah. Chicago is what we hedge off because that's soft red, so that's soft white. And we play the basis game. Some of so the difference play. between soft red and soft white is almost nothing. Color. Okay. And uh, the end use qualities are a little bit different as well. But pricing? Same. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you've got it. Portland. Soft white's kind of a... Ugly redheaded stepchild in some word. It's it's its own little bird here in the northwest. So really, there's only the to know where soft white goes and to know where soft white winter, soft white winter wheat uh, prices are. You just really have to find pricing in the northwest. Well, we have the exporters giving bids twice a day, and uh, 
in Mid-Columbia Producers, where you're at tonight, probably one of the leading uh, co-ops in the country as far as having marketing opportunities for the far farmer, should they choose to use them. And uh, we tend to use what we would call the base price contracts out here. We don't call them hedge to arrives because uh, that has negative connotations going back a few years that we all remember. So that Minneapolis price and that Kansas City price versus the Chicago Board of Trade price, tell me again the difference. I know there's a difference. A different class, the yeah. Okay. So Chicago is is uh, soft red, and Minneapolis is spring wheat, and Kansas City's uh, red wheat. Okay, so it, it's uh, you're you're if you're trying to use anything for a basis on that, you got to first think of what it is you're producing. And Absolutely. Then, and so yeah. and then yours obviously is going through Portland. Okay, you said that eighty five percent of the stuff grown here in the Northwest goes to export, mostly to Asia. Yes. And all out of the port of Portland, some of it out of Portland, some out of Seattle, some out of where? where yeah, the majority of it goes. Portland is actually one of the biggest uh, grain shipping ports in the nation. Nobody knows that. But as far as uh, with the soybeans and corn that go through typically this time of year. However, there are a few holdups in the soybeans this year. There's a we'll bit of an issue on that. We can get to that after we get oh, through yeah. this because I, most people wouldn't think this, when I'm when you're driving from Portland over to here, you're, you know, you get the Columbia River on your left and you've got a train tracks on the yep. right and it's a busy little booger of a train track it is uh, it's the union pacific right or and is it the bnsf the, the union pacific is on the oregon side the bnfs bnsf is on the the washington because i side. saw both different trains I, yes i saw yes. bnsf trains and as a shareholder in the uh berkshire hathaway which therefore oh puts me yeah in, that's a good deal that's uh, as a shareholder in berkshire hathaway that makes me a partial owner of bnsf i saw trains going like crazy and i saw grain trains going west on the U, uh, Union Pacific side. So, mm -hmm. uh, Portland's the biggest grain port, you say? That's what we're told, I mean, as far as a single port and what they handle. That, and what surprises me is I thought they would be in the Gulf, but if you just look at volume through a single port, it's the superhighway to Asia. And uh, our biggest ace in the hole we've got is the Columbia River system for, for shipping. We've got very cheap freight rates compared to your part of the world. Yeah, so what happens? This stuff comes down the hill. You're about 30 miles. Your farm is about mm -hmm. 30 miles from the Columbia River. So your stuff goes mm -hmm. through the this cooperative that we're working mm -hmm. with here tonight, yep. and then it gets uh, – it doesn't even go on a train. It no, goes, it goes it, straight on the barge. It goes right down to a, a, a facility that's on the Columbia River, and it gets put on a barge, and then what? Heads down to Portland. And then it gets put on a And then it gets put on an ocean-going ship. Yep. Uh, when they're so close – to Portland, basically the railroads kind of, uh, how do I put this, don't really want to stop <laughs> if you can't load 100 right. cars. Right. So you got to get into eastern Washington to, to kind of make it work for the railroads. So we're very fortunate to have the uh, barge companies that we do. They give good service. They can actually, if an exporter is short a particular, say, quality of wheat, they can send a barge out of Portland come up to one of the elevators on the river here with the first ones, load it, and be back and turn it in 24 hours. And if you've got an ocean-going ship that's, say, a Panamax with a million and a half, two million bushels on it, paying demurrage on that, they'll ante up pretty good if they can know they can get what they need to got get it. that thing out the door. So now then, all this wheat's going to export. And mm -hmm. then obviously everybody says, oh, I've heard about the tariffs. I've heard about the tariffs. I went to the uh, the USDA meeting where they talked about the market, uh, what is it, market facilitation, facilitation program, market relief program, whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to throw 82 cents 
at uh, every bushel of soybeans or a dollar sixty-five at half your bushel of soybeans. I think is the way it was described. They're going to throw at one penny every bushel of corn, and they're going to do something on hogs, something on uh, a little bit of many on milk. I didn't hear once they talked about wheat, but there's going to be a little bit. Fourteen cents. 14 seven cents, cents up front. Seven yeah. cents. You're getting seven cents for every bushel, and then in December we're going to decide if it's necessary to do the following seven cents, right? Before the election, after the election. Funny how that works, it's, isn't it? Yeah, because you and I know <laughs> both know politics, which brings me to which brings me to trade. So, what is happening on wheat with trade? You're not getting a tariff, are you? We haven't sold a bushel of wheat to China since March. Now that China is not a real big wheat market for us yet, but it is growing because they're starting to understand on their acres they grow wheat. Hell, they grow eighty bushel wheat and do it pretty well. But those acres need to be raising higher value crops. I mean, in China. So China, China, right. China obviously does grow a lot of stuff. A lot of folks don't know that. They don't realize they're the number they're one pig, very pro- the number one pig producer by like five times. Well, number one grain producer too, or one of the top two. Yeah, they're depending on which grain. One so, hectare at a time. Uh, certainly, they don't produce the the soybeans like we do, and no. they don't produce the corn like we do. They do in certain little locales, and then they mm-hmm. do grow some wheat. But they don't need a lot of our wheat because they don't consume as much wheat. Is that the answer? Yeah, you know, when China wants it. They're going to come and get it. They've used the smut issue for years to not have bring in wheat. But when you're that size, you can plug your ears and just say, I don't need it. I don't want it. And there's not much you can do about it. Obviously, soybeans have made their way in because their diets changed to a meat diet. So they need the oil to fry it, feed the chickens and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So the soybean guys are feeling it. Full tilt. Yeah, we, we we see that. But on wheat, and a lot of your stuff going to Asia, mm-hmm. Japan's a big market. Korea, South Korea is a big market. Where Philippines. else? Philippines. South Asia is is where it's happening. Japan is the biggest market, but their, but their uh, population is stagnant. Fact is, I think they've got a little deflation going on over there. Uh, very because steady. Because the more, affluent, the more affluent a culture becomes, the less they reproduce. I tell my audiences this all the time, Darren, that uh, uh, China reversed its one-child policy because they want to get more population growth, and it's not happening. Because once people start living well, they stop having 10 kids. Uh, <laughs> well, and what I've traveled over there, the one thing I've seen is the diets are changing, and they're wanting a more westernized diet. And that means less rice. And I was told in March when I was in Korea that... Rice is for old people. Ah, you see, it is very much a thing of this is what grandpa ate. Grandpa ate rice and grandma ate rice, but we're going to eat what Americans eat, which is why I, I've worked for the potato folks. The potato folks feel pretty good about uh, growing markets in Asia. And then, of course, you do as well. Which brings me to your, your remembering you know, Oregon Wheat Commissioner, since 85% of your stuff goes across the pond, and then the U.S. Wheat Associates, you being the Secretary of Treasury, you take a lot of trips. I might point out to our listeners when he goes there, they don't send him just because he's a good talker about wheat, because he's a good grower of wheat. They send him there also because he's six foot ten. So he's got a six foot ten guy going to Asia. Uh, I think they use him as Godzilla over there to kind of just scare the locals. I don't know. So anyway, you've been to Korea, you've been to Japan a number of times. Get, tell me about what happens when you go there. Well, typically we've got thirteen overseas offices and two in the United States. So in those offices, you have representatives over there. And we would all like to think that you could just do this over the Internet. Well, you still have to do business in person. It's relationships. So back in 1949, after World War II, Oregon actually had a lot to do with it, sending some people over to Japan and teach them new baking techniques and so forth. And that is what really has become U.S. Wheat Associates today. It has evolved, and now you've got 
overseas, uh, 13, like I said, 13 overseas offices, heavily into Asia. And so if I can remember all this, you got one in Tokyo, one in Taipei, Seoul, Singapore, Manila, and I think I'm missing one. And then you've got Mexico City's, Santiago, uh, Casablanca. They just did close the one in Moscow. Uh, Valentina retired, and we really don't sell any wheat to Russia anymore, and they're not going to, so that didn't make a lot of we sense have, to keep we, it open. No, we haven't sold wheat to Russia in, in, since 1980 in any large part, have we? And more importantly, with what's happened in the, the Kazakhstan, Kinnikstan, Uzbekistan, not to mention Ukraine, uh, and, and Russia itself, where Russia is, after it got broken into all of its uh, satellite countries, is still the largest landmass on Earth. They've got plenty of ground where they can throw wheat in the ground. Well, and if they ever figure out and get a stable government, look out <laughs> because they're gonna just knock everybody on their butts with what they could actually. With produce. well, yeah, we basically it's their South America's problems is infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, the former satellites of Russia and Russia itself, their problems are a political system. So uh, yeah, they they all have the capacity to to be uh, more productive, but. Uh, one of them is yeah. infrastructure, the other one is political problems. And you talk about growth and different things. Where we look right now with U.S. Wheat Associates and is a bigger emphasis on South America okay. and South Asia. I mean, South Asia, their populations are still growing. North Asia, it's more stable. So how do you service the challenges? How do you service that, that growing population but not ignore your steady, everyday, consistent cash customers? Um, you know, your Japan, your Taiwan. Now, Korea is an interesting one there. They're number five or six on imports. They've got a 50 million uh, population, but yet their consumption is growing not only domestically, but they export to China. Darren, I have a question for you. Uh, TPP. Everybody mm -hmm. thought, oh, my God, this is the, this is the <laughs> death of us. And I said, well, it wasn't already existing anyhow, and no matter who had gotten elected, TPP was going to go away. Then there's rumblings now that we're going to uh, – we've restarted uh, talks with EU. We've restarted talks with Japan, mm -hmm. and there's going to probably be some of this that still does come to fruition. We're already selling stuff to these Asian countries. You go there for a reason. Right. What, what's the – what do you think? We're going to sell more? Could they buy more wheat? Could these countries buy more wheat anyhow? Well, they can always buy as much as they want. I mean, there's very few countries that you've got 100% market share. The Philippines the, the is the closest. That has nothing to do with trade deals. It's because they're smart. I don't buy all of my stuff from one single supplier either, except for, no, almost nothing. Because when, 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 you are, when you're over the barrel, you're over the barrel. But if you want quality and consistency, you come to the U.S., and that can be good and bad. So how many, how many, of, the percentage, how many percentage of the bushels do you think we have in most of those countries? 50 to 70? Depends on where you're at. Uh, Philippines, you said Philippines great. is very high. And that's because uh, they've been a U.S. friend forever. Well, yeah, and you look at Indonesia, and we're looking to make a bigger push in there in Malaysia. And you got Australia out the back door, but they've got hard wheat, and we have soft wheat. So the class, but nonetheless, for a price, you'll change, right? I, I mean, yes, for you talk about your suppliers that you go to, some of them you're loyal to a penny, but there's got to be one or two you go to because you know you're going to get what you need to get at a fair price, and sometimes you win, and sometimes they win. And sometimes you do overpay, or you pay more than you could, because I certainly, I'm not a, I'm not a low-priced shopper for most things. I'm a kind of price, but mostly convenience and quality shopper. And I think that if we can make that our deal on our trade, uh, we'll win, because we obviously have the quality. You see that when you work for the meat groups. I was told when I did a thing for the pork folks in December, 
that it's very common in these uh, Asian countries, particularly, where they buy boxes that say USB for U.S. pork, and then they recycle them, and they throw their own crap in it so it looks like it actually came from us. That happened in the Philippines. There was substandard flour coming in. Was the Philippines? Anyway, somewhere in South. We've got a guy by the name of Roy Chung. The guy's a rock star. He's worked for U.S. Wheat since he's 23 years old. He's 68 now, I think. And, you know, he can take a taste of the flour almost and tell you where it came from. Oh my. And they were, somebody was schlepping off flour as U.S. wheat based and their results were not panning out. Sure. So, of course, he found out, he found out about this and, and, and fielded the complaint and said, no. Used the solvent retention machine, went in, said, this isn't U.S. wheat and you're getting taken to the cleaners. And, you know, you got to have people like that. And the one thing I've learned is with these individuals, you cannot buy passion. That is ingrained in them. And that's what they're over there working on the U.S. producer's behalf and in sometimes not very nice places of the world to live. What does wheat need? What, what, what do we need? What do you need to see as a person on the Oregon Wheat Commission and the U.S. Wheat Associates? What do you need? If you want wheat to really take off, it needs to be an ingredient. And that's starting to happen now. There's some high-fiber wheats coming out with 10 15 percent. Uh, or 10 to 10 times more fiber than what's in it now and that can help diabetics you got to have it so the when the person shopping at Safeway goes up and looks at a loaf of bread and it says in my case you know can make you skinny and take right, the wrinkles right. out of your forehead right, or some right. kind of a health thing so it needs then it you need, take it off it needs a little innovate it needs innovation or it needs marketing a little of both but I would say the innovation would be the leader on that a bit because if you got that right selling point I mean we're both sitting here, we've got iPhones or droids or whatever, and there's a reason why we all have them, and you need to tap into that market. What, is, uh, what has been the issue you think that wheat has gotten wrong over the last 10 years? Is there anything? I mean, is, is there anywhere they stubbed their toe or screwed up? Oh, I'm sure. If you want me to be specific, I'll have to think about that for a little bit. Okay, well then tell me this. Opportunities. We can talk about trade. Now, we always sure. love to say that, and as I point out, well, Let's not get too wound up on trade. Remember, Kazakhstan learned how to grow wheat. India yep. learned how to grow wheat. Australia is growing more wheat. So this idea that we're just going to keep producing and find some foreign country that's never seen wheat before is a complete mirage. <laughs> everybody has seen wheat and everybody can produce it. So besides trade, where's the opportunity? You well, think demand it's typically goes up about 2% a year worldwide. So, But our yields have kind of kept up. And when you go and I kind of, boy, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. But the wheat guys go, well, we're losing acres, we're losing acres to corn, we're losing acres to soybean. I'm going, well, though, I think the market's working. And the GMO <laughs> issue is front and center. There is no GMO wheat. There is no GMO wheat. There never has been. Yes, there was an outbreak and there has been testing, but there is no commercial GMO wheat. And I've talked to a couple of friends and they told me that, you know, they want to feel good. Ladies that bake, can I buy the special non-GMO wheat? You know, that's, yeah. I pay... Right. $10 a sack for, and I say, well, I hate to break it to you. But there's no such thing as GMO wheat, right? No, and, and people think that they've lost that edge because we do not have GMO. I'm thinking, you know, the market works. Corn has it, and if you can raise 300 bushel corn, you probably ought not be growing wheat. Yeah, so you think that we really, we're where we need to be on, uh, we, we don't need genetically engineered wheat is what you're saying. There are a lot of 
breeding techniques that are coming down the line. You got CRISPR technology, yep. you've got dihaploids, things like that. What used to take 10 years now can be done in five or six. Yeah, the pace, the pace of development is much better. So opportunities you think are we're, we're doing fine on it. And then 2% growth in demand, is there a chance to sell more through, uh, you think, the trend? I mean, obviously the gluten thing is, is a trend mm -hmm. against you, but that will go away. Remember, we, I've seen low fat, I've seen all this crap. I saw low, no steak, no red meat, and then yep. that's back. So I think the gluten thing has got another couple of years. It's and then peaked it goes. and it's down, but that's just the mindset, and that's the popular thing on social media and the coffee shop or the Starbucks and different things like that. And gluten get blames gets blamed for a lot of stuff, you know, <laughs> for a few extra inches around your middle and stuff. Yet for some reason, nobody's suing Apple or Sony or any other or <laughs> sedentary type yes, devices yes. that are not keeping us moving a around sedentary anymore. Sedentary lifestyle. Uh, and you'll hear me in about an hour, you're going to hear my commentary on that. All right. <laughs> Darren Padgett's been my guest. He's a U.S. Wheat Associates Secretary and Treasurer. He's a commissioner with the Oregon Wheat Commission. And he also is a big wheat producer here in uh, Grass Valley, that's Oregon. That's because I'm taller than everybody. That's else. right. He's the big. He's the biggest wheat producer I've ever met, and that's because <laughs> he's six foot eleven, and he's and he's not a skinny kid. All right, uh, you've been listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. Darren Paget is not only a friend and a farmer and a and a wheat guy. He's also a damn good guest, and I really enjoyed talking to him about this because you probably learned something about the wheat business, the wheat trade, something. So. Darren Padgett, closing thoughts, ideas, one last thing you want anybody in the business of agriculture to know or something they can glean from you. Well, we're good stewards of the land. We wouldn't be. And I've been told uh, a lot of different things over the years, but if I do my job properly, my grandkids will continue to have uh, improved soil fertilities and yields for the unforeseeable foreseeable future. And I'll take that and tell you that I think that we need to tell the world, and especially here in the United States, which has a culture of environmentalism, whether the average person even knows what that means because they've never farmed one acre of land, we need to do a better job of telling the story of our environmental uh, accomplishments on erosion control, on compaction, on, on on usage, less usage of diesel fuels, of less, more more pinpoint usage of herbicides and insecticides. I think we're doing amazing things by way of the environment. Can I add one more thing? You on can that? because you've got the floor. Well, that's nice. Hey, uh, I've had a lot of people and a lot, the chances to travel, you sit next to a lot of people on a plane in an intimate setting or different things like that. What do you do? And one of the things I hear a lot is, well, I hope you don't buy anything from Monsanto. <laughs> and I said, well, are they pure as the wind-driven snow? They're a big corp. That's what it is. They got to make money. Mm. But think about this: if you're anti-Monsanto, you're pro-soil erosion, mm -hmm. and that usually makes them stop. And then you go into the spiel about Roundup and safety and on and on. And so, would you rather have the soil going down the creek, or would you rather be building organic matter and feeding the world? And and they've never heard that from anybody in their suburb and their sub suburban lifestyle ever because they just heard what they uh, heard at yoga. Yep. You're listening to the Business of Agriculture podcast. I thank you, Darren Padger, for being a part of this. Thank you. All right. Good to and see you. To you, dear listeners, uh, I hope you learned something. I know you did. Join me again next time. I'm Damian Mason. Until then, see ya.